And good morning, everyone. And good afternoon. And good evening, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to a live edition. Yes, I'm really here. Of the other side of midnight. You know, if we had time tonight, and we'll have more time tomorrow night, so we'll do it then. But I will describe for you the perils of Pauline of trying to do, and that's a reference that nobody under 200 will will remember or recognize. I will describe for you tomorrow night, the opening of the show, I promise, the kind of perils of Pauline journey of trying to do a live radio show from the middle of a desert in the winter um, when things happen. And I'll only give you a hint tonight. It involves the snapping, in my case, of seven simultaneous telephone poles. And we'll just kind of leave it there. My guests tonight are are two people that I wanted to talk to for a very, very long time because the news, if you if you watch the news, anything which is not totally one hundred percent day and night twenty four seven impeachment, um the planet itself was recognized this week by the Person of the Year Award on uh, Time Magazine's cover to this young 16-year-old activist, uh, Greta Thunberg, in, in her cause, in her championship, in her crusade to solve the problem of global warming. Now, we're not going to get in tonight to the conversations that Dane Wigington and I have had as to the ultimate cause of global warming – um, I think he and I differ in some essentials on that, and and uh, I, I, I may allude to that sometime during the show, or I may not. Certainly when Dane is back on, I will talk to him again about it. His basic thesis is the problem is not only not fossil fuels, but it's because the deep state, the hidden government, the the guys behind the scenes, whatever you want to call them, they have been working on the planetary environment uh, for over 70 years, uh, trying to modify it in various ways. And it's his contention that it's the side effects of this geoengineering, which is resulting in the current warming collapse of certain ecosystems that we're observing, corals, rainforests, et cetera, et cetera. My take on it is a little broader because many years ago, David Wilcock and I did a, a joint paper. I think it was back, I think it was just a few days before um, um, my friend in Connecticut, uh, uh, Gene Mayloff, uh, was murdered. That we had come to the conclusion based on data from all over the solar system that there was a solar system wide warning up to and including um, Pluto. And when you monitor the sun and you match sun records against what's been going on in terms of temperatures on Mars, temperatures on Pluto, um, they don't match. The temperatures of the planets and there's environments that NASA has been monitoring have warmed up significantly over the last couple of decades. But the sun, if anything, is actually less active than it has been for a very long time. And so in the mainstream, there's a uh, disconnect. No one can seem to understand why, um, if the sun is not doing it, 
and yet Pluto is responding to some unseen heat source, what could be the mechanism? Well, to me, the answer for many years has been obvious, and that is the real physics, the hyperdimensional torsion field model, which predicts these kinds of energy exchanges um, that are not transported via visible electromagnetic radiation, but result in the deposition of energy in various places in the solar system, in other words, heating without a visible mechanism. And uh, that's a very long, complicated discussion having to do in part with the Parker Solar Probe, which is NASA's mission to the sun, which has found some really interesting new data that fits into this idea that it's not just sunlight, you know, streaming, being intercepted by the Earth, which is the cause of global warming, but there's an unseen ultra-physics component, which is obviously not part of any mainstream discussion. That being said, it's really a good idea to look to alternative energy sources on this planet uh, than fossil fuels. I mean, so-called fossil fuels, and I use the word so-called because there is some debate as to how old they are, how ancient they are, if they're, you know, ground-up dinosaurs and whatever from 60, 70 million years ago or they're of a more recent origin. Regardless of their origin, there there seems to be a kind of a cost-benefit ratio of the amount of energy, the amount of money, because energy is really money, uh, to go get them. And why would we need them? Because of the entire petrochemical industry. Fossil fuels, carbon fuels, are much too valuable to be burned. There's stuff you can make out of them. Then you can easily recycle the stuff you make out of them endlessly over and over. And uh, tomorrow night we're going to talk a bit more about that um, when we talk about another subject, which is uh, kind of a life-giving Christmas present that uh, we're going to announce, I believe, tomorrow night. If I'm wrong, Cynthia will gently correct me. Point is, tonight's discussion is going to be about alternatives to fossil fuels, but not the kinds of alternatives that you've been hearing about in the mainstream. Because we're not going to talk about windmills. We're not going to talk about, except maybe obliquely, solar cells. We're not going to talk about uh, deep ocean energy exchange systems. We're not going to talk about all the exotic but alternative energy mainstreaming systems that uh, we've heard about in the last several years, even decades. We're going to talk about something so radical, so disruptive, but so real that it has literally been forbidden from reaching the marketplace. When I say forbidden, we'll probably be sharing some interesting horror stories tonight about how this life-giving technology, this insight into how physics of energy really works, and where ultimately infinite, and I mean infinite, like you could never run out of it infinite, uh, and ecologically totally compatible energy has been kept from us, not because I believe, my personal opinion, of economics, you know, big bad oil companies, the, the greedy, the dollar, and all that. 
but I frankly think it's because of much more arcane and ultimately much more important reasons. And we'll get into that probably toward the third hour. Um, as we usually do in the show, first couple hours are being devoted to my guests. And then the third hour, we'll open the lines and we'll invite your calls. And I'll give out the number. In fact, I'll give out the number now. So in case you really want to talk to us and you have a burning question on the idea of alternative, and I mean really alternative energy, uh, and you never knew whom to ask, well, the two folks I have on tonight, they're the folks to ask. So write this down. Area code 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. Once more with feeling, as my grandmother said, 917-889-8802. That's our number. Third hour, you can begin to call that, and I'll take them as uh, they come in. In the meantime, let let me go directly to our two guests and their backgrounds because um, they've got some really interesting backgrounds and and it, it, it's kind of a, a match made, well, in a higher dimension that brought them together and has uh, brought them to the fore tonight to converse with you. Gene Manning is a prize-winning author whose book, Starting the Coming Energy Revolution, which was Avery Publishing in 1996, have been published now in 10 languages. Gene first encountered the energy underground in the 1980s by meeting outside-the-box experimenters Bill Mueller and John Hutchinson in Canada. Mueller named his company Pran Technologies, wondering if a life force called Prana flowed into powerful rare-earth magnets to enable them to do the work in his motor generators. Hint, hint, he was on to it. Despite her skepticism, journalistic curiosity led Jean to the first of 40 energy research conferences she'd attended now on several continents across many decades. Her interest had deepened in 1986 when she read naturalist Victor Schoberger's concepts of how humankind could have technologies that work in harmony with nature as opposed to what's going on currently as you look around us. Jean also envisioned an even higher role than emerging science can play, helping people ever realize their connectivity via the background energy of the universe itself. Jean's interviewed many dozens now of inspired inventors, courageous engineers, and bleeding-edge physicists in Europe and North America. She's chronicled their struggles by writing endless articles and books for the public on this soon-to-be-born revolution. Now, in recent years, Jean's been an invited speaker at conferences in five countries. The most unusual invitation came from the Secretary of State of an unnamed Asian country. Oh, I know that drill. That happened to me when I spoke at the UN. And as a result, Jean became a panelist at the International Women's Conference on Future Energy in 2017 in the capital of Kazakhstan. The decades of travels and those of Susan Manowich resulted in hidden energy, Tesla-inspired inventors, and a mindful path to energy abundance. And among the people who have uh, praised her book is one uh, longtime friend of ours, Paul LaViolette, 
who's been on the guest of, the, of this show several times, he praises their book, Hidden Energy, by describing it as a kickstarter of a public dialogue to be part of an energy revolution. So without further ado, Jean, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be on a show hosted by such a knowledgeable person. <laughs> I've admired your work for a long time. Well, we'll see how that pans out as the morning goes on. Okay, <laughs> Susan Manowich focuses on conscious leadership for the positive evolution of all life. She has spent over 20 years in the areas of leadership consulting, emotional intelligence, resonant technology, and better understanding human dynamics to successfully transition through these ongoing planetary changes. Susan grew up in Massachusetts in the United States, was a participant with the PEER Program for Extraordinary Experience Research Group in Cambridge, Massachusetts, under John Mack, MD, an old friend of mine who's no longer with us. She graduated with a master's in science focusing on organizational behavior and development. Some of Susan's professional accomplishments are in the field of conscious leadership development and emotional intelligence, where her work has been consistently well praised by her clients around the globe, including Harvard Business School, Yale University, University of Chicago, GSB, London Business School, and many others. Susan is a published author in several pieces of emotional intelligence work. She was a lead researcher and author with Dr. John Klimo on a paper entitled Scientific Information Received by Contact Experiencers and is the co-author, along with Gene Manning, of Hidden Energy, um, published recently, last few weeks in 2019. Susan has given several public talks around the country regarding consciousness and the new energy technologies. So, Susan, welcome to the party. Thank you so much, Richard. I'm happy that we're staying up late and look forward to the next couple of hours. That's only the fourth time she's mentioned how late she stayed up to the <laughs> show, folks. Obviously, it's a sore point. Susan <laughs> is a morning person. <clears throat> and the show is not. <laughs> okay, Jean, let me start with you. Um, I've known you and I've known about you for decades, um, but I've never really delved into your own personal history or your background or or that moment in your life when you looked around and said, my God, they're not telling me the truth. So tell us, when did that aha moment that there was a lot more uh, going on than we've been allowed to realize kind of hit you? Actually, there were a number of aha moments through all these decades and decades. <laughs> and it actually, what opened me up to possibilities even before I ever met one of the inventors, actually was uh, spiritual studies and spiritual experiences. And then I realized, yeah, we're, they're not telling us everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, and anyway, in the, in the spiritual writings, it, it talked about a power that flows down from, I don't know, centers of, center of it all, down through the dimensions uh, into the lower worlds and uh, coarser and coarser worlds as you get into the physical and doesn't go in a straight line because it hits resistance, but that it is um, aha, more high 
super high vibration or maybe on a different spectrum of what we talk about as electricity now. And so there's a, um, just, it just opened up vistas and probably prepared me for listening to the first inventor you mentioned uh, in his questions about whether his magnets were tapping into prana or, you know, he, he just couldn't figure out how, how there could be a possibility of more power out than they could measure going in. That particular inventor didn't um, fulfill all, all the promise. He, he died without uh, all happening that he had hoped it happen. But he was quite a teacher, uh, very, very enthusiastic and uh, excited about the possibilities for these new powerful permanent magnets that were just coming out then. They're very birth magnets and uh, neodymium and iron and samarium cobalt were just coming out then. And, and he had um, a friend, uh, Dr. Rolf Schafranke, who had worked as a consultant with NASA and came to visit him and, and others who, who brought news of the latest materials and, and helped him to, to be on the leading edge of that moment. And one of the ahas was how their lives aren't suddenly <laughs> transformed into fame and fortune if they have made some advance in the state of the art. But uh, if they're in the energy arena, um, other things happen. Hmm. Vulture, you know, what, what some of them call vulture capitalists come along, <laughs> or just people who who uh, want a piece of what they think the action's going to be and tell tall tales about their connection to big money. And as a result, I saw that first inventor get deep into debt by leasing a office building, uh, to getting all sorts of office equipment on the basis of promises of money that was coming and never came, and and other things that that happen along the way. But it works both ways, you know. I've seen uh, inventors also exaggerate what they had, and and the hapless invet- investors were the ones who were taken. Hmm. So opened my eyes to uh, whole international scene that was going on and nobody knew about and at first I thought this would be fascinating material for fiction or 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 just a a non-fiction book that's just describing a scene so it wasn't until years later that I actually had an aha of seeing a demonstration by a scientist in that case it was Dennis Cravens demonstrating the Patterson power cell uh, over unity, more power output out than uh, measurable input, and also have seen lab bench demonstrations of solid state, you know, electronic circuits that use principles of resonance and end up with uh, anomalous amounts of power out. Um, but they were just well. In one case, a man was using all the implements and metal pans and everything from his wife's kitchen <laughs> to, 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 to build what he's building. Now so that would was, make a heck of a movie, wouldn't it? Oh, yes. Uh, there's movies upon movies and upon oh, movies. I, I, can just see, I can just see Spielberg with his bent for the, um, uh, you know, the suburbs. Remember Poltergeist and all that? I can uh-huh. just see him with this mad inventor in the kitchen Kind of like that scene in Close Encounters, um, you know, with what, Richard, what's his name, building <laughs> right. building the yeah. volcano. 
out of everything, mashed potatoes. including mashed potatoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's bring in Susan. Susan, same question to you. From looking at your bio, it seems to me that you've been focusing almost totally in the realm of consciousness. How did a consciousness person make the transition to engineering, electrodynamics, voltages, amperes, you know, bending metal, all that hard, you know, mechanical stuff? What what was your aha? Well, energy is energy, um, and I think when you start to really get into looking at the underpinnings of, of all of this, <laughs> um, even some of the people that are featured in our book, you know, we could call them hardcore physicists would say that uh, a consciousness is actually a large part of um, what may be going on here for us to understand it. So, um I would say it was as part of a natural transition. Um, I, I'm someone who, who I would say as, as a young child um, was able to um, see subtle energies. And one of the reasons that I spent time um, with, with the peer group, but also Dr. Rudy Shield, who is a Harvard astrophysicist, um, I, I did terrible in high school um, in terms of, of math and science. <laughs> for the record, <laughs> um, which, you know, my, my, I have a daughter and, um, thank God she does better than I do, um, in this, but, um, I was able to, to understand things, um, that, that I obviously did not read in book. I was not reading, reading physics in high school, certainly not doing it for entertainment purposes. Um, but I was able to understand certain, certain things from a cosmological perspective. So I spent, um, couple of years with Dr. Shield, um, sharing with him what I was able to uh, know and understand, I would say, naturally, um, which is not, I would say, um, um, something that is extremely extraordinary. You'll see a lot of the people that are also featured in our book um, have these, call them insights uh, as well. And um, it's just part of, of you know, what, what some of us are tapped into or some of us have. Uh, so <clears throat> that is what really got me moving and started on this to say, you know what, I may not be an engineer, but there's certain things that I, I, I know and understand. And I would actually spend um, weekends in my 20s, 30s, and, and uh, early 40s um, working with a group of um, astrophysicists, engineers, um, also psychologists, to really understand um, deeper about consciousness technology. And so this was a part of it. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's more natural um, than it may, it may look, I guess, in terms of reading a bio. So uh, that, that's what really got me started was saying, I know there's more on this planet than what we're led to believe very clearly. And it was really the pursuit of that mystery of trying to say, well, how come things are the way that they are? How come we, we seem to have this rudimentary um, extracting, exploding type of technology and not technology that's more harmonious with nature? Uh, so there's there's a little bit of, of the background on there. And um, also, I run New Energy Movement, which is a, a nonprofit that was started well over about 15 years ago. Um, and recently, we started another organization that's based in the UK uh, called NUI, the Foundation for Moral Technology. So uh, actively involved in, in working in this field to 
what I call work to get to the realer story um, with these different technologies uh, by creating a thorough vetting protocols and procedures. Because um, as Jean alluded to, um, you know, one of the things is in this arena, you can get a lot of stories uh, and the stories are wildly interesting. They certainly make for tremendous movies. As, as you said, I mean, there's things that have happened that, you know, in, in a week that I, I never thought would happen in my life in this arena. And, um, you know, what we found is being able to, to really, you know, get to the heart of what's most real and true is, uh, is, is probably one of the better ways that we're going to work to make these technologies more realized for everybody. Well, in terms of those stories, I don't want to skip over them. So, you know, we got a few hours here. We can kill by telling remarkable stories because <laughs> I have been, I mean, um, our, our, uh, uh, IT expert Keith Morgan and I were talking earlier that we had personally both been with Gene, who I begged, borrowed, and you know, basically uh, kidnapped to go to visit Troy Reed in Oklahoma many decades ago to see his uh, magnetic motor. And we were kind of ruminating over all the things that we've seen that frankly do not have not happened in in normal technological development. So if anybody gets the idea, we're going to be talking about the normal, you know, American build-a-better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. No, in this case, they'll come to your door and beat you, period. <laughs> so, um, Gene, let me go back to you. You've been a journalist for a while. We won't get into how many years, but you've been, you know, written up. You've won awards. you covered all kinds of things. What was your normal beat before – you got into covering uh, so-called breakthrough energy. Oh, at the, at the time that I started going to Tesla conferences, I was the editor of a of a small town newspaper, and and before that, I'd worked um, for regional newspapers and and uh, wrote for a regional magazine. Um, I had you know written for a Vancouver paper, but but um, my arena was pretty provincial. And so it really expanded my life when I encountered the uh, non-conventional energy technology field and, and became obsessed and started uh, following my curiosity where it led, which was pretty far afield. Hmm. So had you covered like medicine or the so-called soft sciences or were you working on current events? I mean, covering uh, being editor of a newspaper – you basically had to cover everything for the, the local town, right? Right. I, and what I learned about medicine was the alternative medicine that at some of the non-conventional energy conferences, there's always a kind of a spillover into, well, there are these other related inventions that are considered spooky <laughs> that may have something in common at a basic a foundational level with with the energy technologies that can replace coal and oil. Hmm. Susan, um, you you mentioned something about hanging out with an astrophysicist. Was this because you suddenly developed a passion for astrophysics <clears throat> or for the astrophysicist? Oh heavens, no, no, no. <laughs> um, uh, no, Dr. Shield was uh, is an, an amazing person. Um, it was wonderful to be able to share 
these deep insights that I had with, it wasn't just with him, it was with a, a grouping of different people. And what they were able to, um, I guess, confirm was that some of these natural insights that I had was confirmed from an astrophysics standpoint that, you know, you couldn't really read in a book. So, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's something that, you know, we, we, that, that we have this, this, this passion to try to understand the world that we're in, but, you know, this, this greater universe that we're in as well. So um, he's, Dr. Shield is also featured on our book. Um, he's uh, an individual that worked with Dr. Edgar Mitchell um, also. And, um, you know, I find him and always found him, I've known him for 20 plus years to be a really open-minded individual. And, you know, one of the braver scientists that uh, even though he's got a, a, a Harvard, you know, a title attached to his name, uh, he's not one that, you know, toes the line. He's someone that, you know, truly is a scientist and says it's okay for us to talk about these concepts, um, even though, you know, it may not make us popular in, in our, you know, current academic institution. Okay. Well, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guests this morning are Gene Manning and Susan Mankiewicz, and we're talking about hidden energy from the great American Southwest, as my old friend Art used to say. You're on the other side of midnight, from the deserts of northern New Mexico. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return.
And welcome back, everybody. Saturday night, December 14th. Oh, my God, it's what, two weeks away from Christmas? Is that is that possible? December 14th. I remember what was happening many years ago on December 14th. Anyway, my two guests this morning, Gene Manning and Susan Mankiewicz, are discussing hidden energy, the um, Tesla-inspired inventors and the mindful path to energy abundance. How how did you guys meet? Okay, I, I guess that's my next burning question because you have two very different backgrounds, and somehow de- uh, destiny or karma or fate uh, <clears throat> or a phone call <laughs> brought you together. How did you wind up working together on this on on this joint project? Susan. <laughs> oh, okay. Sure. Um, we we met at uh, an in, we met at a spot in Oregon. Um, there was a meeting that was organized by an individual that um, was really wanting to, I guess, more activate um, this field in this arena in was it Jean, 2015, something like that. Yeah, I think it's October of 2015, and that's where we met and. Um, it was it was a it was a weekend meeting. Um, I remember I think I had just flown in. I was living at Hawaii at the time and just flew in. And um, I remember I sat on the couch and <laughs> Gina, I think you were sitting a bit to my right. And I remember, wow, you know, we have we have a lady here. This is nice. You just don't typically <laughs> see see women in this arena, and she's seems like a really nice person. So um, that was my first interaction, and we we had all stayed at this house for this weekend meeting, and we all got a chance to know one another a little bit better. And it was my first um, uh, again meeting with with some of the people that were a part of um, new energy movement and some people that were, were associated with it, so to speak, but not formally involved. So uh, it was for me um, really wonderful because what I saw with this group of people um, were people that seemed to be very humble um, and very dedicated to the pursuit of these technologies. And what I was feeling was, was a bit of a more realistic way. And it was a way that seemed also a bit more practical. That was something, I don't know, maybe me being a New Englander, we're, we're quite practical people. <laughs> so um, I really like that approach. And that was a bit different from what I had been experiencing, um, you know, where I was previously. So I really felt um, at home and I felt that it was, it was um, a, a right to group to be involved in. And so that's where we first met. And maybe Jean, you can pick it up about uh, a little bit okay. more and then about the book. Sure. Yeah, at that meeting, I was impressed with Susan's qualities. You came actually um, with some uh, previous, um, you know, announcements from Joel Garvin, who was then the president of the New Energy Movement, and uh, and he and I had co-authored their book, so we were good friends. And he told me that uh, Susan Manowich was somebody who wouldn't work with anybody who wasn't of integrity. And that caught my attention, and and uh, as as I got to know Susan and realized that uh, we had 
a philosophy about this field in common. And uh, and I really, really liked her qualities and really could see her taking a leadership role in this field. And so I was really very pleased when Joel wanted to pass the baton of the New Energy Movement presidency on to Susan. Mm. And, uh, Boy, that's been, dramatic. It <laughs> <laughs> <That> was dramatic. <laughs> well, it didn't happen that day <laughs> or that weekend. It was uh, a bit later. Um, yeah, and, and we um, shared it a room at the Architects of the New Paradigm conference. Anyway, I'd been working on uh, doing an update to Breakthrough Power, the previous book that I'd done with Joel, and just thought it would be a lot more, not just fun, but also bring a good balance of the East Coast and the West Coast and, and different viewpoints. And I'm a generation older than Susan, and um, just just a lot of balancing out what each can bring a different group of uh, of acquaintances and and connections and but we have um anyway in my point of view um philosophy of what what's important in this field what needs to be said um and it's from a from a kind of unique viewpoint because we're not writing a technical book for technical people we're writing for the general public about what this importance of this field is and the importance for in the big picture it, it's about humankind's future and and there's good news and there's cautions and there's just a lot to discuss issues that hadn't really been discussed in those technical books that have been written so i'm i'm really pleased to have worked with susan and of course we're still collaborating <laughs> well, you know, to me, it's intriguing, Susan. They would pick you only to head this this uh, act, act, activist uh, or organization that you now run, because when I when I looked at this whole field, guys, and I kept wondering why doesn't it follow the great American model? You know, build a better mousetrap, et cetera, et cetera. And why can't I go to Kmart or Target or whatever? I mean. Over the last several weeks, I've had severe energy problems here in the desert. And in that 24 hours where there was no power anywhere in town because of the seven telephone poles all coming down in the wind simultaneously, and it's getting colder and colder and colder, and, you know, I've got LED lights, but I have no means of fixing any food, no means of plugging in heaters, I don't have, you know, butane heaters or anything like that. I'm literally, you know, the, the, there's, a, there's a TV show called Naked and Afraid. Well, the only part of that was the fact I wasn't naked. But uh, believe me, I was very bundled. <clears throat> but it was really um, when you're not feeling well and all the accoutrements of Western civilization are unavailable, you realize how perilously close we are to the edge uh, not only individually, but in terms of civilization, on the things we've been doing for hundreds of years to create, quote, energy. And it was many years ago that I finally made the connection that the reason, at least in my opinion, that this stuff has not um, been brought to market is because it's not just about electricity. It's not just about 
alternatives to oil or gas or solar or wind or whatever. It's about the source, basically, of human consciousness, which models the reality of three dimensions, which creates this reality where there are such things as fossil fuels. And it's that crucial connection, that consciousness connection, the potential for opening up to the mainstream, to the general population, to, to starting with, let's say, the American people, the idea that this is not all there is, that that's the big bad secret that they, the big bad they, do not want us to know. So all of these derivative technologies, which could walk lightly on the earth and could make you know this planet into heaven on earth, are not being politically allowed to come forward because really they are the harbingers for a consciousness awakening that someone somewhere does not want us to experience. Am I right or am I wrong? It's amazing how, how much of the picture you've presented there. Well, I mean, nothing else to me explains it because all of these gadgets, they really work. Some of them work bad, like all technologies. Some of them work better. Some of them you can see them following Heinlein's for rules of technological development. I mean, I just found one that is a humdinger, as my grandmother would have said, but none of them are available in Kmart. So let's let's go to that question first. What are your how do you guys see this lack of the availability of what is physically obviously doable for decade after decade after decade and are we on the edge potentially of a political consciousness revolution where this desperately needed new technology comes into its own and it, we finally can use it to save the earth and ourselves. Anybody who wants that? Um, yeah, thanks, Jean. Um, well, okay, so there, you brought up a lot there, and I can I can feel my my heart pumping a we, little bit we stronger have, here. We have hours. We have hours. Yeah. No, 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 it's good. It's listen. It's it's really good. It's really good because I think, like like Jean just said, I mean, you really just brought it to the heart of this. Um, when let me tell you a little story. When I was asked by Joel, I was sitting in a car, it was cold in December, excuse me, the end of November, beginning of December. It was very cold in a car, and I was in Somerville, Massachusetts. Know it <laughs> well. I, okay, you know it well. well I, used, I used to live in Springfield. You're kidding. No. Oh, my goodness. I used I to run back far. and forth down the, you know, the Mass Turnpike, the most expensive right. you know, Main Street yeah. in America. Yeah, um, it, when, which was when, supposed to be abolished a while ago, and now it's still running and charging us. <laughs> Keep going. Went, went to Tanglewood in the summer and spent Aww. a lot of time in Boston. So, yeah, I'm a New England kid. So Aww. you're sitting in a cold Massachusetts okay. night. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and I get this phone call. I get this phone call from Joel, and I'm getting ready to go into um, my niece's a, a, apartment at that point. I was visiting her. And that's when Joel, who is the former president of NEM, asked me to NEM, um, New Energy Movement. Ah, thank you. Asked me to um, to take over the whole organization, and I remember I was very tired that day, um, and it was at night because 
I had been taking care of my dad um, who had cancer and he was at Mass General for, you know, in and out of the hospital. Has any, anybody has taken, you know, care of loved ones with cancer that they get treated at the hospital. It's, it's a to do for a very, very long time. So I remember thinking to myself, because I had just um, moved back from, um, Hawaii to Massachusetts, and of course, when I say cold, it's because I was used to being warm for a good couple of years, Richard. <laughs> and so it was. You remember that moment, um, but I remember saying yes and thinking to myself, "What just came out of my mouth? What am I crazy? Why am I doing this? This is ridiculous. Like, why am I in, in the process of saying yes to something where I'm I'm not sure, you know, really where I'm supposed to be living in the world right now." Um, and, you know, what am I doing? Because, you know, life ter- turns life turns over when y- you go through these big transitions, right? And so here I'm saying yes to this, you know, but, but I can feel this thing on a deeper level like, mm, you're supposed to do this, Susan, right? But logically, it was like, I don't want to do this. This is too much work and I'm busy and I've got things that I've got to take care of. So um, and plus, I was in the process of um, taking a like a, a more flexible consulting position at the time in, in Boston. So, long story short, um, why I brought that up is because when I took the position, what I really started to realize, and, and it took me a while to figure it out. Um, you know, people when you when you take over something new, I think everybody expects that you're going to come in and you know immediately just just make everything like a beautiful storefront. You're just going to get all the <laughs> items in there and you're going to put everything up on the shelves and here you go, everybody. Here we are. But this field is different. It you is think? different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, Susan? Yeah. Uh. yeah, this field is different. So what what I did? Jean, with did, the, did you ever take her aside and tell her? Now you got to understand what you're getting yourself into. <laughs> um, no, uh, I would say I would say we had a lot of fun discussions about you know uh, exchanging stories, which thank God, you know, Jean has the experience that she has because it, it helped to normalize what I was going through a bit, right? Um, and and again, thank thank God that you know, we, we have each other and had each other for that experience. Um, but I really needed to understand and take what, what I knew for myself was how I saw things being either truthful or less truthful, accurate or more inaccurate. And it took me a while, like I said, probably a good two years to really figure out what was important in this arena and how to really address it. So I ended up working with um, and still work with um, uh, an engineer who we we have a very uh, incredible um, professional collegial relationship where um, we looked at the vetting. We said, you know what, there's not a lot of good vetting protocols that are in this arena, number one. And number two... Hang on, hang on. Meaning to decide whether a given inventor's technology really works or as Gene... Um, Mail, if you say to me, it's vaporware. Uh, yeah, to to see whether technology really works. I mean, because if we're actually talking about getting something to a manufacturing space or having it be replicated for usage, then there has to be 
you know, it has to work consistently to to a degree and be able to, you know, again, be replicated. So <clears throat> so that was one of the things that we really needed to do. And even in speaking with Joel, um, one of the things that he didn't get a chance to do was really work on these vetting protocols and procedures. So, you know, we said this is something that, that we really need to do. But the other thing that we saw um, was the money part. It always seemed like there was with tech, if if someone said, oh, we've got this incredible technology, then, you know, the, the money people were there to, you know, potentially invest in, and everyone was already calculating how much money that they were going to get. And I'm not talking about all of the inventors, by the way. Um, but you saw this dynamic of money and tech and money and tech. And it was like, there was something that was missing in between, which was a legitimate living ecosystem of a process to be able to really like work this in. So, you know, that's a part of it. And so these are the things. Can you, can can you take a moment and describe that ecosystem process? Because when people go to Kmart and pick out something, you know, off the shelf, Mm. they have no idea what it took to get it there. Mm. And I think people need some education in process. How, how, what, what was your one red flag about, you weren't seeing the right kind of process in some cases or many cases. Sure. But I think when there's a strong attachment to an outcome, whether it be a tech working a certain way, either by an expectation by, you know, whomever's in the room or again, having an attachment to something financial, then you see inaccuracies and um, in detail missed, uh, that sometimes people are afraid to ask the difficult questions, you know, such as, okay, well, well, this was running. Well, how long was it running for? Um, can we get in there and actually look at X, Y, Z? Uh, can we have the technology to measure it for a certain period of time? You know, so th- th- that type of stuff. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think, I think the field has gotten wiser. I think that people have gotten wiser. Um, I think also that the uh, collaborative aspect truly helps when you have individuals that have been looking at these technologies for a very, very long time that work with one another and collaborate with one another to share um, their knowledge and information. Cause it is, it's a very complex arena um, to really like even some of the, the best vetters will say, you know, I I haven't come across this piece before. So if they talk to someone else, you know, who does vetting, then they can, you know, cross-reference these different ideas with one another. So that's just that's just a small piece. I mean, there's other pieces that go into it, but you know, being able to accurately vet the technology is a really big deal. Um, and you know, I, I I'm not sure if that's something that has ever truly collaboratively, you know, been done. I know it's something that we do. Um, on a, a regular basis, um, and we've got you know teams of people that that do this. Um, some are volunteer, um, some some not to a degree, um, but you know it's a, it's truly a, a labor of love to get to you know um, these working technologies that are safe and that can actually be you know sm- small enough um, to get into people's homes and to get into people's communities. So um, yeah, so that's just a little bit. <laughs> Okay. So let me go to Jean. Um, Your part of the book is these stories of these inventors who 
have repeatedly tripped over the same, oh my God, this shouldn't work, but it does. Bring out a few of them. Start with maybe your best example of someone you followed who's been trying for a long time to get what he or she discovered in a marketable form to Kmart. Hmm. Um, it's not on the top of my head, but I'm Paul Babcock came to mind and I, uh, I'd have to open the book to remember all the details that I've learned about him over the years. But but he um, started with his interest, as many of them do, as a kid, um, playing with electronics and took and got his education and everything. And then as a professional out in the world of uh, industry, out working in remote areas as a troubleshooter, he was He's quite respected in, in what in his field, what he can do. Um, yeah, give us a kind of a thumbnail on who Paul Babcock is before you launch into how we got into this area. Oh, okay. Um, Paul Babcock is a brilliant engineer and inventor who um, grew up in the middle of Washington State. And, uh, yeah, I tell about his uh, background that toughened him as, as, a, as a kid in a in – a, family where they were uh, considered half-breeds because this is a kind of a redneck town that, that had uh, had its um, ideas and prejudices. And, and so he spent a lot of time either fighting, you know, mm. just fight, and but he had the, the, a lot of brothers and sisters to hang with and, and lots of learning going on about nature. But he also spent a lot of time in the local public library and he ran into the works of um, Wilhelm Reich because of ah. a couple of brave librarians. And Reich is something I would like to talk more about uh, later, but uh, just that he that was part of the formative uh, process of, of Paul's understanding of um, harmony with nature. There's a life force out there, and, and that rung true with what he'd seen, and it it uh you know he took the standard schooling route um studying engineering which with most or many people might just kind of pound it out of them the the love of nature and and the looking at at, at nature as something alive but uh nothing nothing really killed it and paul he's a big powerfully built man uh, just uh bigger than life in in many ways and uh very, you know, easygoing and and uh, you gotta love the guy. Um, so he and his brother, working in in industry, saw unusual things happening. Power transformers, um, phenomena that couldn't be explained. So so did, so did he become an electrical engineer, or was he a mechanic, or a kind of a jack of all trades, or he became an electrical engineer, ah, right? Okay. And so he was working with with large systems. You know, he'd go go fix a a, a mountaintop installation, or a, you know, a remote power grid. Uh, it's a troubleshooter, fix the things that went wrong. And um, but you know very brilliant in, in electronics and so one of the um, highlights of his story was one 
when he was kind of spending time like you did recently with no power mm. and um, sitting beside an electric stove and, and uh, you know, he had a gas lantern and everything because he'd broken his arm that winter and couldn't work. Uh, I know you didn't go through all that, but um, I think he can relate to, to his state of mind at that no, I just dropped 25 pounds of books in a box on my foot trying to fix some of the power problems. But be that <laughs> as it may. Um, so he he was listening to the radio, which he was up in Alaska, and that's about all there was to do for entertainment. And uh, Joseph Newman came on the show and made claims about uh, more power out from his magnetic motor generator than should should be happening and Paul hadn't heard anything exactly like that but something that that Joe said <clears throat> rung true to him and so he ordered this book and he said that it was a it was a big tome you know and uh, mostly a lot of ego but there were um <laughs> there was some yes I principle. have I have Newman's book <clears throat> it, it it'll become a classic someday maybe yeah but what's the principle that there's a no relation between um oh i can't it's not on top of my mind it's something about magnetism that um you know turned turned a light bulb on it because it's not on the top of my mind and because of that aha and also um being exposed to those powerful permanent magnets that that really turned bill miller onto it too um, and that was a, a experience again in in a remote cabin in Alaska, and he's sitting beside a wood stove, and a uh, buddy he was visiting with handed him a neo or whatever what a powerful magnet, and uh, it it slipped out of his hand and smashed into the stove and just rung like a bell and smashed into pieces. Then he realized that that was power. That. He hadn't. It wasn't his hand motion that caused such a powerful sudden motion. That it was intrinsic in the magnet, or, or you know, what what was going on here? Um, and so these sorts of questions set him off on a road toward developing an electronic switch that uh, can change things. Um, he had brothers who were down in Seattle and, and working in uh, industry and sent him some components that he could play with electronic parts who were yep. the latest and greatest. Cause Susan Manowich and Gene Manning, and we're talking about hidden energy and the connectedness of consciousness and this physical energy which can be used, which can actually do stuff. And we're going to get back to the stories of some of the inventors when we return. You're on the other side of Midnight my name is Richard C. Hoagland. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed 
that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.